Hello, I'm Anthony Fury. Thanks so much for joining us for the latest episode of Full Comet. If you haven't done so already, please consider subscribing. What is going on with the school system in North America today? Should parents be worried? And should they get in the game a bit more? Now, there are currently municipal elections underway right now in Ontario, my home province, and a number of people have remarked to me that it almost seems like school board trustee elections are garnering more attention than city council races, at least in some neighborhoods. Could that be because the stakes for public education seem so much higher right now and and ripped straight from the news headlines? A transgender teacher wearing jumbo-sized prosthetic breasts to class, I'm sure you saw that viral story, no longer requiring kids to take exams throughout their whole high school experience that's happening here in Ontario, an increase in politics in the classroom, and an obsession with divisive race and identity issues. That's what's animating a lot of parents here right now. But while this seems to only just be flaring up in Canada now, we are a good couple of years behind a parents' rights movement that's been unfolding in the United States. How'd that one get started? What were the issues that first got parents concerned? And what could that experience perhaps teach us about what to expect here in Canada. Our guest today is one of the parent activist voices who has been on the front lines of what's been called a mama bear movement. She's been labeled a hero by many, but has also taken a lot of heat from detractors for it as well. Azra Nomani was well known to many people for her work prior to speaking out on education issues. She was a journalist for the Wall Street Journal for many years, as well as writing for the New York Times. She later became an organizing voice for Muslim Americans who reject extremism and radical Islam. Now she's a senior fellow at the Independent Women's Network and co-founder of a parent group called the Coalition for TJ. We'll break down what that is in a minute. Azra Nomani joins us now. Azra, great to have you on the show. Oh, wonderful. Thank you so much. And it is so great to have this mission to draw lessons from our experience in America, in the United States of America, so that our fellow brethren and and sisters across the border can... um, take back our schools. I love that. I love that mission. And I want to get a sense of what that mission sort of really is, how it came about. And I guess I'll start with with you as I described your uh, your experiences, your, your activism, your writing prior to this movement. What got you first interested in what's going on in schools and, and what got you uh, concerned such that you became an activist? What were the issues? Yeah, you know, um, thank you so much for bringing up my backstory because it's really important to understand it, I think, to, uh, to know what motivates me today. There's really two principles. Um, I am a classic liberal and I have always voted Democrat in the United States. Well, those were for values that I believed were ones for equality, justice, and transparency. Well, unfortunately, as you all know, in Canada also, a lot of those values have been lost among liberals, and we have this new illiberal movement. I saw this very clearly as a Muslim feminist when we saw compromised these important values of human rights uh, as, as, you know, special interest groups made sure that we uh, just stayed silent on issues of extremism within my Muslim community. Well, I do not believe in a hierarchy of human value, you know, whether it's women who have to pray in the back of the mosque or uh, race issues. And that, that enters into the debate about what's being taught at schools. And then the second value that's really, really important to me is one of, of um, children's innocence. 
You know, it is one that is sacred to all of us. And, and these two principles have guided me. Um, and, and to take your listeners and you back, June 7th, 2020, it was my birthday. And I was a child born in India to a Muslim family. I came to America at the age of four. Uh, an immigrant girl who knew not a word of English. We lived in a roach-infested student housing uh, barracks, old army barracks on the campus of Rutgers University. This uh, girl detective named Nancy Drew became my best friend and that's how I learned English. And it was in America's public school system that I was able to really find my voice. But there on June 7th, 2020, the principal at my son's high school, Thomas Jefferson High School for Science and Technology, sent our parents and students an email. And she wrote in it that we, the parents and family of TJ students, needed to check our, quote, privileges. And it was the, you know, virtue signaling of the moment after George Floyd's killing but it was like a knife in our hearts because we knew our stories. You know, we had parents who had survived the cultural revolution in China, communism in Eastern Europe, my own family overcoming poverty. Well, our families were 70% Asian at my son's school. And at that moment in the culture wars, we were the wrong, side brown. We were the wrong kind of minority. And the school system started to put a target on our backs because they wanted to increase the correct minority numbers at the school of black and Hispanic students. And so that was my, um, that was my introduction to this new hierarchy of human value that has, uh, you know, plagued now the North American debate on race over the last two plus years. And I understand that parents quickly organized. They were very frustrated uh, with this idea that there would need to be, I guess, entrance quotas based on uh, the, the right, as you put it, uh, minority groups of the right skin colors. You got very organized and, and such that there's even core processes underway now. Oh, yeah. It's just so beautiful. And I want to just inspire every parent because it was me, one mother who received that email. Then it was another mother, Suparna Dutta, who also got that email. And she sent a response to the principal the next morning. Another mom, Helen Miller, got the email. And she wrote an email back to the principal that said, I'm hopping mad. She wrote it at three in the morning. I called us the hopping mad parents for a while. But it was just half a dozen of us. You know, that's all it takes for a movement. And then by September, we had created an organization, just like you said, called Coalition for TJ. Just a Facebook group. We used, um, uh, you know, change.org for a petition against this new lottery system that they were going to use to America's number one high school. They wanted to get rid of the merit-based admissions test and eliminate that test so that they would then be able to get the numbers that they wanted on racial demographics. Well, guess what? We did organize exactly. We had a vigil for the death of TJ as we knew it. And we were lucky enough to get these lawyers from this organization called Pacific Legal Foundation 
to represent us in court. But I just want parents to know, like we didn't go to court and for months until after we had been, uh, you know, waging our battle in the court of public opinion. We have to win in the court of public opinion in order to ever win in the court of law. And sure enough, in um, earlier this year, in February 2022, we got a decision by the judge in this case that we had filed of discrimination against Asians. And he ruled on our side, we the parents were correct. The school board had waged a campaign of discrimination against the Asian families. The school board is now appealing because they're so stubborn. And this case is very likely going to end up in the US Supreme Court as a fundamental wow. landmark case. Yeah, just like Brown versus Board of Education in the 1950s integrated schools. That's wow. the power. That is the power of a few hopping mad moms. Well, here's something I don't understand, though. So we have this, I guess, do-gooder principle, you know, yes. good liberal intentions saying, okay, I want to increase the right kind of diversity or what have you. And then some parents who were of Asian uh, heritage write back and say, I'm unhappy with this. And, and I'm kind of confused why the principal didn't say, oh, okay, okay, let's talk it out. And then, oh, whoops, I'm misguided. Fine, we'll figure it out. No, instead they dug in their heels. And like, like, how is it even going to court? I just find that kind of remarkable that the administration would actually want to keep fighting on this. Yeah, that's where our world has turned upside down, you know, and I'm carrying in my hands right now the, uh, you know, manifesto for the ideology that has caused this upside down world called, this book called The Critical Race Theory, the key writings that formed the movement. It's the big red book, I like to call it, versus the little red book that Mao was pushing through the Cultural Revolution. <laughs> yeah. Um, and in this book is this new ideology of this upside down world. And what happened is that you, you know how language is uh, exploited. So we, the Asians, who had overcome, you know, tyranny, poverty, and all of the um, you know, elements of the oppression matrix, right, that's supposed to grant you points. We were negated because we had dared to succeed in America academically. And so a new term was assigned to us, and that is this term called being white adjacent. We, what a term. What does that mean? When people say that, what do they mean by white adjacent? Yeah, I learned it in the summer of 2020. As I learned, you know, this, this, these three words, critical race theory, it means that we have now the quote, privilege of, of uh, education, um, jobs, perhaps employment, that is part of the white society of oppressors. And then we have lost, you know, the uh, elements of oppression that would otherwise, you know, give us any kind of, um, you know, uh, credibility among in the social justice world, and and so they even try to, um, you know, do this to Hispanics, right? Because they have now differentiated with the white Hispanics versus the black Hispanics versus the brown Hispanics. Like there's this this differentiation that's happening among people that is just convenient way to 
erase the folks that are inconvenient in their narrative. Um, and, and so we, we were termed white adjacent, we were called resource hoarders. That's another slur used. Uh, we were called segregationists. Can you imagine? Because our school had 70% Asians as if we had, you know, made this the rule. All that had happened is I sat at the dining table every night with my son, you know, doing his homework beside him, right? And that's how he passed these tests that got him into the school. But now we were called the privileged class. And it was so um, disheartening to me, you know, I, I, I wanted to, to be honest with your audience and you about, you know, being a classic liberal because I think we have to hear the voices and understand that this community has uh, betraying those values of, um, you know, fairness, it's just fundamental idea of fairness in society when you start dehumanizing others. This is their language, right? Like, of um, that I am just throwing back at them. Uh, they, they, ha they themselves have now created systemic racism. We'll be back with more with Azra Nomani in just a moment. Azra, I want to ask you about how this movement went from you doing activism at your son's school to a much bigger conversation in different states, a national one that's unfolding right now. I know you were on Dr. Phil recently talking about uh, other concerns with parents' rights in the classroom, lots of debates. When you first started uh, the Coalition for TJ, I understand that parents really from across America got in touch with you and yeah. different parent groups arose and you realized they were different individuals uh, with different connected but slightly different concerns about what was going on in the classroom and that's led to the point where we now have almost a national movement going on that's that's showed up just over the past couple years yeah it, and really it is a national movement and that's what, what's so remarkable and i'm gonna just borrow again from the progressive world and t tell you all about a lesson i learned from this woman eleanor schmiel right she was a feminist leader in the United States, and she came to my campus when I was an undergrad at West Virginia University. West Virginia University, and she said at that time, back in the 80s, you only need five people for a movement. One person to, back then, think about it, pick up the phone and call folks to invite them to your rally. Number two, make a poster. Number three, put tack it up on bulletin boards. You know, number four, staple all your little educational material. And number five, pick up the phone and call a journalist. Hey, it's the same now. You know, I told you about Suparna Datta, Helen Miller, Yu Yanzhu. She was a Chinese, she is a Chinese American who survived the Cultural Revolution. Harry Jackson. It's, we started with a handful of parents all coming from a place of authenticity. And you know why? How do we grow? Well, I learned it from Nancy Drew again. I'm a loudmouth, right? I'm a journalist and I got a Substack started and started just writing our story. And that's where take lessons from, you know, the activist movements that you see around you. Get an account on Substack or Medium. Um, Patch.com is a, a platform in the US. Um, go on Nextdoor, which is another platform. Start your Facebook groups. That's all it takes in order to be real, you know, to to be to let the world hear that tree falling in the forest. 
And yes, I um, just started hearing stories from around the country, parents watching what was happening in their schools. And as we all know, we all started speaking at our school boards and our one minute and two minute videos we started sharing. And one parent inspired another parent. I'll never forget the day that I watched this dad, Ian Pryor, testify before his school board in Loudoun County, Virginia, across the border from where we were living. And guess what? All he did is he stood there and he had not a note card in front of him. He just looked each school board member in the eye and ha said his truth. And I thought to myself, that's all it takes. You know, we just have to speak from the heart, look them in the eye, challenge them on these principles, simple principles of fairness, transparency, you know, and equality that I had started talking to us about at the beginning. And, um, and, and that's, that inspired me to go before my school board at this time without my, my speech just written out in front of me, reading from it, and look them in the eye. And what did they do at that turn? cut off my mic, you know, because our power is so strong because we and we took on this idea of the mama bears because, you know, Asian moms have been maligned as, quote, tiger moms. Right. 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 Yeah. And I said to myself, like, I want, I want parents to have that sense of honor, you know, that it is to be a parent. And, uh, well, are they maligning the idea of, of hard work? Because yes, I, I know yeah, I've heard exactly. the tiger mom idea is about, you know, make sure, as you said, sitting down at the table with your son, do your homework every day. We're going to make right. sure it's there. And, um, you know, we're hearing more and more. I alluded to here in Ontario, you don't have to do any exams hypothetically ever in high school to graduate. They still do it a little bit, but there's no, it's not required at all. And it seems like very different than when I went to high school and just there's no standards anymore. So some kids, I guess, are just not going to adhere to any standards. And then we're told that that is when, to your point, tiger moms or whatever term you want to use do enforce standards in their own home. Oh, well, that's, that's not fair. That's right. not fair because it's not going on in other households. So we got to somehow, instead of celebrate that and encourage it to be replicated, we got to drag that cohort down. Yeah. You know, the New York Times just did this back to school issue on what school is for. And um, mm. I, yeah. And so I got an email on a Thursday and my experience is emblematic of, you know, the crisis we're in today because the editors realized, oh, darn, we don't have an argument that school is for merit. Because exactly to your point, it's now an afterthought, you know, the idea that we're actually supposed to excel and do our best. So can, can I write an op-ed by Monday? I'm like, okay, I can do it, you know, because we have to be involved in the debate, right? Any opportunity we get. So I banged it out. We got it published by the next Thursday. And I told our story, you know, my family's story. And what did I get from this theology lecturer at Harvard. I had lived with privilege of having had a father who became a professor in the university system in America and that I had, you know, educational social capital or like some jargon that I can't even understand. Well, we understand what it is. It's just, again, the privilege, you know, used to negate us. And, um, and and then when I told the story in, in the op-ed, I told the story about how as a single mother, I chose to leave my job at the Wall Street Journal so I could 
drop off my son, pick him up, volunteer when I needed, read aloud at book cafe. And I was lectured and told, oh, that must have been nice to have had the privilege of leaving your job. Well, I didn't leave. They have a problem with every choice you're making yes, in life, apparently. Exactly. Yeah. I worked, I worked like every parent knows, every working parent knows. I, wor I worked to raise him, put him to bed, and then start another shift, right? Till two, three in the morning to earn the keep, to keep a roof over our heads. So no matter what, if our argument is is opposite theirs, they will try to erase you. So that's why one important theme that we learned from the parents in New York who have fight, fought this fight, fought this fight, they told us this dad, Chien Kok from um, the fight on the merit schools in New York, he told me early on, it was Father's Day 2020, he said, be unapologetic. Wow. You know? and do not let them shame you. And, and that is the principle every time that we go before the school board we are unapologetic in the values you know that we believe the ones that you were raised with because that's what's going to uplift children right this this race to the bottom by the activists is devastating for not only society but for our individual children and that's what we have to fight to protect but they have attempted to shame you. I know in, in stories about you, I see there's a, a profile, in, a long profile of you in Mother Jones, which is not particularly flattering, tells your story, but lots of criticisms and, and talk about how quite remarkable that, that you and the people you do activism with have been labeled as white supremacists. Uh, you've been called uh, QAnon moms, I guess mm -hmm. the idea that everything you're saying is just a conspiracy theory uh, to, to have concerns with these things that are happening in schools, the admissions criteria, the critical race theory. Uh, it, it is quite remarkable that the, the system, or at least some figures in the system, in the entrenched establishment, are, are very unhappy with you and other parents speaking out. Yes. And, you know, it was my experience at the Wall Street Journal that always, you know, taught me to follow the money. And it is money interests that want to shut us up. And who are those interests, Anthony? Of course, it's the teachers' unions. It's Democratic Party politics, unfortunately, in the United States that the teachers' union fund. And that is why it's just it was so exciting for me to hear what you said at the very beginning that the school board race has become the hottest ticket in town now in Canada because that's what's happening in the U.S. Because we saw over these two plus years that school boards are political. They are run by a machine and they shut you up and they shut you out. And uh, you, the only way you can prevail in crafting public policy that fits your values is to get a seat on the board. Like it's that simple and parents have to vote. We, um, we won the governor's election in Virginia a year and a half into our battle. And who was one of the moms that led that battle? It was the mom that I mentioned at the very beginning, Suparna Dutta, who received that email from our principal, never involved in politics. And she ended up becoming the head of the Educators for Youngkin Coalition that ended up getting parents forward. And Governor Glenn Youngkin was then elected after his uh, uh, opponent, Terry McAuliffe, said parents don't have a say in what's taught in, sc in schools. 
you know, it, and, and that it's is a remarkable line, but a remarkable tell, because we're increasingly yeah. learning that that it is actually technically true. So people don't yeah. like that. And now they're pushing back. Right. Because this is a parents rights movement, really, you know, and the assumption that um, we don't know what is best for our children is just so paternalistic, ironically, and patronizing. But ultimately, we know it's ideological. You know, you divide the family and you have more, uh, you know, persuasion than on the young mind. And, and this is, again, something I learned, you know, fighting the extremists within my Muslim communities. Like, I knew that they were indoctrinating our children in these madrasas or religious schools and that we had to you know challenge that interpretation of my religion that was being taught in those schools well it's the same thing with wokeism it's a religion and they are trying to go after children they are going after children i have beside me you know book after book after critical race theory the pronoun book if you're a drag queen and you know it the hips on the drag queen go swish 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 Let's talk about it. The Teen's Guide to Sex Relationship and Being Human. And one of the lines from it, I can't believe it, Anthony, is literally this one. It says uh, to children, to teenagers, a great place to research fantasies and kinks safely is on the Internet. Wow. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> so from race, they have now gone to gender and sexuality. But ultimately, it is about... Um, you know, winning the hearts and minds and bodies of our children. And, and it's our sacred duty as parents to protect them. And let me ask you about some things that are happening here in Canada, how it relates uh, to the issues that, that you've seen. To the point of the transgender issue, there is a, a teacher who's gone viral around yes. I think, the whole world, pretty much. This teacher at an Oakville High School who has been wearing uh, these jumbo-sized fake breasts to class uh, it has not gone away. The person still shows up every day, teaches shop class. I have some parent whistleblowers who tell me about it. And, you know, I, I think what parents are mostly saying is just this isn't appropriate attire. It's not situation. Right. It's distracting from work. And then there's other people who get hostile at it who somehow think it's like about transphobia or what have you. Nobody's talking about, I'm sure there are a number of transgender teachers teaching in the Toronto area and it's never been a news story. Nobody's talking about them or vilifying them. It's this extreme scenario. And yet one thing that's been remarkable for me as someone reporting on it is the school board and, and, and the administration just constantly send back these antiseptic press releases or press statements uh, just saying, we support gender rights. We support inclusive right. environment. And you're asking them things like, will the teacher be placed on leave? What's going to happen? We understand that some students have been told they're not allowed to protest it. And you're asking these detailed questions and they just give the same sort of automaton response to all of this for a scenario that's that's just out of control. But yet they're fine with it continuing. Yeah. And I think, you know, it, it goes back to this lesson that I learned because it's just like what you said at the very beginning, like, how do they justify this, you know? And, um, you know, in our case, it was blatant d racial discrimination. In, in this case, this is blatant hypersexualization, you know, in the classroom that would not be appropriate for a heterosexual or, a, you know, anybody, right? So what, it, what I learned is that, like, we're up against a machine, you know, a political machine, and, um, and, 
having an, any expectation of, of um, you know, a reasonable resolution from them is not realistic. Like, we have to get our expectations in line with the reality of the politics. We have to keep holding them accountable. But I'll tell you, like, I sincerely, like, as a parent, like, I sincerely, sincerely for six months thought I could persuade our school board to rational thought on this. But what I didn't realize was, you know, the political contributions from the teachers unions, the fact that the Democratic Party had 12-0 on our school board in terms of seats. Um, and they had a lock, you know. And now I can see that the Virginia Democratic Party, you know, is uh, using their the school issue to, you know, try to win back the governor's seat that they're lost because of their own positions. But they all they're all doubling down. Like they don't care about the sensible politics even to me. They're just gonna keep losing because there's more parents and sensible citizens on our side than um, than theirs on these issues. But we're up against a lot of money. That's really the the challenge. But but you know the great civil rights movements of, of um, history were up against a lot of moneyed interests. And I put us down as civil rights activists myself. Azra Namani, it's been a fascinating conversation to hear what's really unfolding on the ground right now with the parents' rights movement. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. And all the mama bears and papa bears, grandma and grandpa bears, neighbor bears, stand up. You've got a sacred duty and, and have moral courage while you do this because you're not alone. We're all in it together. Thanks so much for listening to today's show. Before we go, I want to let you know that this is my last episode as host of Full Comedy. I'm moving on to pursue other opportunities, but it's been a privilege to be an editor, columnist, and podcast host of Post Media all these years. I want to thank executive producer Kevin Libin and technical producer Andre Pru for playing such key roles in making this show a success. This podcast will continue with a different host, so stay tuned for more great episodes. Thank you, and all the best. Full Comment is a Post Media Podcast. I'm Anthony Fury. This episode was produced by Andre Pru, with theme music by Bryce Hall. Kevin Libin is the executive producer. You can subscribe to Full Comment on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, and Amazon Music. You can listen through the app or your Alexa-enabled devices. You can help us by giving us a rating or a review, and by telling your friends about us. Thanks for listening.